So we know that some drugs cost a lot of money, but does that high price tag equal effectiveness? Not necessarily. We'll take a look at two examples and why the FDA shouldn't be talking about regulatory flexibility right now. Plus, we have new numbers from the Kaiser Family Foundation's COVID-19 vaccine monitor. From Fulcrum Strategies and Flatlining.net, this is the Flatlining Podcast. One thing we've noticed from listeners of the Flatlining Podcast is that not all of you have signed up for our weekly e-newsletter. You can do so now at flatlining.net. Each week, we share some of the most interesting and relevant healthcare news-related items we find and how they might affect you, your practice, or your patients. It also includes a weekly column from me. Sign up now for the Friday Pulse Check at flatlining.net. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare news and analysis each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net, and with me, as he has been, is the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies and economist Ron Howergan. Ron, thanks for coming on today. You're very welcome. Glad to join you. We got a couple of different things we're going to talk about, and the, the meat of our program is going to be about uh, something that I talked about in the Friday Pulse Check last week, which is our online newsletter at Flatlining.net. And it has to do with the FDA approving expensive, but somewhat, in, in some cases, rather ineffective drugs. And we'll talk about uh, Aduhelm, which is a, an Alzheimer's drug that, Ron, you wrote about earlier this year. Mm-hmm. And we'll also talk about a new one for ALS called uh, Relivrio um, that was produced uh, by a pharmaceutical manufacturer that's intended to treat the symptoms of Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, but it doesn't appear to be very effective. But we want to start talking about the September COVID vaccine monitor from the Kaiser Family Foundation, because we've been taking a look at that each month. And it's, it gives us a good gauge of American attitudes towards the COVID-19 vaccine and uh, other issues going on right now during the pandemic. And Ron, the, the main takeaway from this is that um, most, it appears that uh, a lot of people about half of adults have heard a lot or some about updated COVID-19 booster vaccines. Um, Talk to me a little bit about what the booster shots are and why these are different from the first two doses or single dose for Johnson Johnson that people might have already had. Um, Yeah, well, there's a couple things going on with, you know, with this series of vaccines and the boosters. Um, One is trying to maintain the effectiveness of the vaccine. Um, and by that, I mean the effectiveness of it killing the, you know, the virus quickly so you don't run into hospitalizations and that kind of thing. And as such, trying to help prevent, you know, um, infection from the virus. So the first set of boosters were really to try to maintain that because they realized that this vaccine's effectiveness starts to wane over time. Your body forgets uh, the message it got under the uh, under the vaccine about the spike protein, and so it's given a little booster. And and 
you know, we all remember some pediatric vaccines that had boosters associated mm -hmm. with them. It's the same kind of concept. Like, hey, you're getting a little tired on this vaccine. Uh, the vaccines, you know, the effectiveness getting a little tired in your body, if you will. There's a little booster shot, so to speak. A little cup of coffee for the, you know, for the antibodies. Um, the second thing that's going on is sort of marrying the idea of a booster with introducing the new variants. You know, mm -hmm. the vaccine or the virus has been very good at mutating. All viruses do. And so it's okay. Well, it's changed its game a little bit. Let's adjust and change our vaccine a little bit. It's sort of like the, you know, I'm coming off of a, a football weekend. It's, you know, sort of like the coach going into the halftime and going, okay, well, now that we've seen their offense is doing this, let's change our defense a little bit. So both of those things are happening when we talk about boosters compared to the first single or, or dual dose of, of the vaccine. So when we talk about, uh, we've talked before about messaging, and I think we've both agreed before that um, really the, there was a messaging ball dropped when uh, when we started rolling out the vaccines. Do you think there's been a message, do you think the ball's been dropped again when you have 20% uh, of Americans say they don't know anything at all about the COVID-19 booster shots? Well, I think it's personally, I think it's a combination of two things. Sure. I think it's a combination of poor messaging. And then there's been a lot of poor messaging about these vaccines throughout all of COVID combined with, you know, COVID fatigue. You know, mm -hmm. it's been a couple of years. We're just tired of even talking about it. Um, and so some of that apathy is just, I just don't even tell me about it. I'm so tired of it. And, and some of it is, again, continued poor messaging about uh, you know, what these things are, the vaccines are, and why you should get them. I, I think that's one of the reasons why the, you know, the vaccine rates amongst children are so low is really poor messaging. Kaiser Family Foundation, as we've talked about before, is, is interested in breaking things down into to more demographics than I would normally look at. But there's mm -hmm. a, they've broken it down here into the, to the age groups, which is somewhat interesting to me, but they also broke it down into party ID. And as you might expect, um, more Democrats have heard something about the booster shots than Republicans have uh, that have responded to this survey. You have about 11% of Democrats that say they've heard nothing of all, nothing at all about the booster shots compared to 24% of Republicans. What do you think accounts for that um, jump in the numbers between party line? Do you think it's the, the where people are getting their messaging from, or do you think it has more to do, like what you said with COVID fatigue, that the whole thing was a scam anyway, and I don't want to hear about it anymore? Well, you know, I think, and we've talked a lot about the fact that th this whole thing, um, the pandemic, the vaccine, definitely, um, treatments um, became very politicized when mm -hmm. it really shouldn't have been. And, and some of that was the you know, the nature of the culture we're in right now. Some of it was really poor messaging um, in a lot of different ways from both previous administration and current administration. So it became politicized. And I think the reason why we now see, and we see it almost in any question around the pandemic, we see a split along party lines. And, and in this case, then, you know, the have you heard anything about it being so much lower on the Republicans and Democrat is I don't think they want to listen. Um, now, I will also say the flip side of that is there have been times when I think the um, the people with a you know left-leaning bent or a Democratic Party bent overestimate or overemphasize things. 
you know, I, you know, I think I've seen, you know, uh, the Democratic Party sort of overplay how bad something is at the same time and almost at an equal level that the Republicans have underplayed it. Um, so, you know, this awareness, I think, has to do with whether or not you're even listening mm-hmm. or care about it. You probably remember a couple months ago, uh, back in August, when we talked about the July uh, vaccine monitor, and we talked about the the main takeaway being from that was parents' attitudes towards the vaccine. And we've touched on that subject a number of times since then. And back in July, you had um, 7% of parents said that their uh, that their child under the age of five got a COVID vaccine. And then you had a mixed about right away and wait and see. At the time, 40% of parents said they were definitely not going to get their children vaccinated. Well, the September vaccine monitor shows that half of parents now, which is a greater number than we had back in July, say their child, they will definitely not have their child vaccinated for COVID-19. However, the got vaccine and the right away, the got vaccine number has jumped a lot, which would where Mm -hmm. 20% of parents have said they've gotten their child vaccinated. It's interesting. We're seeing the gap in the middle between, you know, wait and see and only if required close, but not just on the got the vaccine side, but also on the definitely not side. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, I think, um, you know, back in July was probably still a little early. And I think those wait and see folks were really being honest and saying, I, I don't know yet. And now what we're starting to see is that number, you know, split one way or the other. Either mm-hmm. they're making up their minds that, yeah, I, it does make sense. I have talked to my pediatrician and I am going to do it. And there's another section of those that were in the wait and see or the, well, no, now that I've learned more or that I, I have a more firm opinion of it, I'm not going to happen. So I think that, you know, that in the middle undecided is starting to decide. And we're seeing, mm-hmm. that's why we're seeing both of those numbers rise. In the, for, for kids ages five to 11 and teenagers, I do want to point out that the, the, um, got vaccinated has steadily risen for all for both of those age groups um whereas the definitely not category has stayed roughly the same um generally in the 30 percentile somewhere in there for both those age groups it's the under five where we've seen these interesting shifts um on the wait and see mark of it Uh, and that's not that's not really surprising because Mm -hmm. you know that's the the period of time when you get very nervous about you know you know, what can happen with vaccines, et cetera. We still have a, a you know, a part of the population that believes that vaccines cause autism. And mm-hmm. and so it's it's a more nervous time, uh, especially for first parents, et cetera. Once you get into that, you know, 5 to 11 and 12 to 17, you know, you, you first of all, and I, I remember when, you know, my first child started to get into that age, you realize that, you know what, kids are pretty tough and resilient little things. You know, I mean, they're, it's, you know, they survive an awful lot of stuff. And so you get less worried about, you know, what's that injection going into mm-hmm. my baby's arms versus my 15-year-old. Right. Um, so that doesn't surprise me that there's that split there. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about from the vaccine monitor is you they have a divide on whether or not um, people are sure if the booster doses are recommended for them. And I now I got mine back in January, so this was before they had the. I think I don't think that one was variant specific at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but they broke it down by age group, race, education, and community type. But generally, it seems to be pretty split down the middle uh, for everyone. That about half of people are sure whether or not the uh, the vaccine the booster shot is recommended for them. Well, the other half, more than two thirds, are not sure about it. Um, what do you make about that? Um, 
and how can people get more information for them about whether or not they should get a booster shot for the COVID vaccine? Well, I, I think part of what that shows is an inconsistent um, and sometimes very conflicting messaging that's out there sort of in social media and, and the news media, et cetera. You know, it, it's no wonder um, that people are confused about whether this is recommended for me. If, you know, if you Google, you know, COVID vaccine recommended for me, you're probably going to come up with in the top 10, one article that says, absolutely, why haven't you gotten it yet? And something else that's posted there that says, are you kidding me? It'll kill you and mm -hmm. make you sterile. And, you know, um, so it's not, it's not, uh, unrealistic to think that that would be confusing when there's that much confusing information out there. Now, the, then the real thing is, well, how do we get past that? Well, there's a really easy thing to do. Ask your doctor, you know, you don't, don't, you mm -hmm. know, take your hands off the keyboard, push your chair back and go see your doctor <laughs> because you'll get a very, very consistent approach. I, you know, I, I, I think I, on a previous program, I joked about, you know, when I went to get my first vaccine, um, and the nurse for my doctor came in and said, you know, um, you know, we're going to do your vaccine and we're going to do your flu vaccine. And I kind of went and almost said something and she said it wasn't a question, <laughs> you know. So she was very emphatic that this is the right clinical thing to do. Now, obviously, right. I could have had that conversation with my doctor and he'd have given me all the statistics, but it was very consistent. Oh, yes, mm -hmm. you're going to get both because they, we don't know how they, you know, what would happen if you had COVID and the flu. Mm -hmm. And this is the right thing to do clinically. So we could get through all that so people would just ask their doctor and then believe them. Right. Yeah. And that's the key is, is, is me. And why you would see someone that you don't believe and don't trust. I have no idea, but uh, apparently those people are out there. Yeah. Uh, we will make sure that we have the results from the Kaiser Family Foundation September COVID-19 vaccine monitor posted in the show notes for this program. You can find it at flatlining.net or in the description of this podcast on the platform you're on now. want to switch gears and talk a little bit about, um, well, I guess a little bit more than a little bit since it's the majority of our program. We want to talk about the uh, recent approval of a new ALS drug by the FDA. But I think this conversation deserves a little bit of um, context. And Ron, I want to point you back to an article you wrote in February at flatlining.net called Cost and Risk. And we'll have it linked in the show notes uh, for the program. But you talked about, you shared your personal experience with a family member that had Alzheimer's. And then you talked about a new drug called Aduhelm and why uh, Medicare was not going to cover this drug. And I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit of background on that. Yeah, so um, the drug came through and did get FDA approval. Um, but there was a big sort of questioning in the prescribing community and mostly neurologists, the folks mm -hmm. who treat um, Alzheimer's. And I talked to a lot of neurologists, I work with a lot of neurologists, and almost uniformly they said, hey, we're not going to prescribe it, even though it's approved, because it's really questionable whether it has any positive impact. And if it does have positive impact, it's really marginal. And one of them described it to me as saying, this drug might help some people with mm -hmm. Alzheimer's a little bit. Boy, that's an awful lot of, you know, maybes. Right. Um, to get something that isn't 
um, in the end, if it's helpful, very helpful. It's not like it would be if they said, you know what, we don't know who it's going to be, but one out of every 10 people with Alzheimer's, it cures. If that were the case, boy, everybody would be getting it, mm -hmm. trying to get that, you know, that Willy Wonka card to say, you know, I, I, I got the golden ticket. Um, and so the prescribing community just said, I'm not going to do it. And it's not like it's a baby aspirin, okay? And, and what I mean by that is people commonly tell people, hey, if you're at a cardiac risk or whatever, take a baby aspirin a day. There is not a single double-blinded clinical study that shows that it helps, Mm -hmm. Now, we think it helps, the logic is good, and we know it doesn't hurt. So for the price of a baby aspirin, it might help some. We think it probably does. We can't prove it. Of course you'd do that. This is a very expensive drug that we also don't think really probably helps, and if it does help, only a little bit. And that's a whole different scenario than the baby aspirin. So, you know, this, this drug came out. It was very expensive. Nobody prescribed it. And then the manufacturer cut the price a little bit and still nobody prescribed it. And, and still to a large degree, it's not being prescribed um, because the community basically said, well, it's really expensive and it maybe helps just a little bit, but probably not. The members of, I would say, generally the conservative community was um, not happy when Medicare decided they weren't going to cover Aduhelm. Um, the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal wrote a piece on it. Um, a number of congressmen spoke up about it because I they, were, they I mean they had a legitimate argument that some people want access to it, mm -hmm. um, but as you pointed out, it's very expensive and not very effective. So we have Medicare, which you know is a big payer for for a lot of medical services in the United States, deciding they weren't going to pay for it because it wasn't they you know they didn't see the cost risk you know at, yeah. as being a benefit. Mm -hmm. With that in mind, why do you think the FDA would approve a drug that is not effective, but at the same time, very expensive? Well, and this, I think this drug is a perfect example of an enormous problem in the U.S. healthcare system. And one of the reasons why we have runaway cost um, mm -hmm. is the FDA is approving things based on safety and efficacy. Okay. Mm -hmm. They're really, their charter is not to look at cost. Okay. Now, sometimes that's good. Okay. Because let's say the FDA was looking at a, a new cancer drug mm -hmm. and we determined that, wow, this is really safe. It doesn't have any really harmful side effects and it does improve life expectancy of people and pick your cancer, breast cancer, lung cancer, whatever. Um, where, let, and I'm just making up numbers. Let's say that current life expectancy with somebody with that, this type of cancer is five years. And this new drug would increase that from five years to 10 years. Okay, that's really phenomenal. And the FDA says, wow, it looks like all the data shows it's really effective and it's very safe. It's approved, hallelujah. Mm -hmm. The FDA in that is not gonna look at how much that drug cost. Well, let's say that drug was $10 million a patient. Well, the reason why I say it's good for the FDA in, in some respects not to look at costs is because they wouldn't say, well, boy, there's a lot of people that could really get help by this, but it's so expensive, we're just not going to approve it. They don't think about money. Okay. Now, that's useful in those kind of things because then people's lives change and, and you know, it isn't kept from them just for money. But the problem becomes for things like this, this Alzheimer's drug.
When the FDA looked at it, what they supposedly looked at it was, well, it, it appears to be pretty safe. It doesn't have, you know, unavoidable nasty side effects. And the data did show some marginal improvement. So by the FDA's standard, it gets approved because it meets efficacy and mm -hmm. safety. Well, this is the problem with our system is there wasn't anybody looking at the economic decision right. and trying to, and this is a tough thing. How do you balance the cost with how effective it is? Okay. How do you balance that really expensive drug that is very effective and adds five more years of somebody's life, which is usually valuable, with a drug that's very expensive but might improve your Alzheimer's a little bit? Mm -hmm. We don't have that economic test anywhere in this um, calculus, if you will. And that's sort of what Medicare did, uh, was they stepped in and said, hey, this thing will break the bank and really for not much benefit. And at some point, we've got to decide that we can't do everything for everyone. And we're going to have to start making these economic decisions. And obviously, you know, some people got upset by that because we've always had the position of we'll do everything for everyone. Right. Um, and that's what's got us into the bind we're in right now. And for the people that would want a drug like Adrihelm, there's, there's, you know, I, it falls under, I, w I would argue that it falls under the American philosophy that, you know, you should be able to get something that you would want in this country, generally speaking, with you know some exceptions regard you know regarding you know criminality for certain things, but you yeah. know if something is legitimate and and is not harmful to the greater population, that people generally believe you should be able to get it. The question then becomes: Is who you know with Medicare subsidized by the taxpayers, who has to who has the right to say I don't want to pay for that? I mean. Right. For example, there are a lot of things that I would say my tax dollars go to that I really wish they didn't go to, and I don't have so much of a choice in that. Mm -hmm. But in the instance with Medicare deciding they're not going to cover something like Adjahelm, they're not saying you can't get it. They're just saying we're not going to be the ones that are going to pay for it. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that that, that is the crux of the issue. It's not, um, you know, your, your ability to get it. It's can you make somebody else pay for it for you? I, I, I heard somebody one time talk about it this way. He said, look, um, you know, it's relatively inexpensive to buy a car that will go 150 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. Buying one that will go 200 miles an hour is an infinitesimal, is incredibly more expensive. Now, right. there are people who buy those Bugattis. And, hey, if you got a couple million dollars and you want to go 200 miles an hour, good for you. I want to go 200 miles an hour and I want a Bugatti. It's just nobody will buy it for me. Mm -hmm. You know, so I might have to settle for a car that's a whole lot slower than that. And that's the crux of the issue. It's it's one thing to say, you know, if you've got the means and you want to spend that kind of money on a car, that's fine. Don't make me buy it for you. Um, and, and, it, and the reason why I like that analogy is because there really isn't a need to go 200. You know, right. that extra speed really isn't required. We're not saying that Medicare is going to pay for basic health care. Mm -hmm. or for life-saving health care for other things. We're not saying that Medicaid isn't going to pay for pediatric immunizations. What we're saying is at some point, that small amount of incremental value that's very expensive, we're going to have to say, I'm sorry, we're just not doing that. Here's, mm -hmm. your, you know, here's your basic car. It'll do the speed limit. That's what we'll pay for for you. What was interesting to me when, when this whole conversation was happening was, and I mentioned it a few minutes ago, is that when the Wall Street Journal uh, editorial board wrote about Adjuhelm. They were frustrated that Medicare wasn't going to cover it because they believed that Medicare shouldn't be making those kinds of decisions about, um, you know, 
whether or not someone can attain a certain drug or not. And I had pointed out, I, I believe it was on the Friday Pulse Check the following week, that, you know, it's interesting to see the Wall Street Journal editorial board, which frequently criticizes government spending, to be mm-hmm. complaining that the federal government wasn't going to spend more money on something that wasn't very effective. What do you think about their particular argument in that case, comparing it to the way they normally are? Well, yeah, it does seem a bit out of character. Now, I will say that I think, while I don't think their particular criticism was was perfectly on point, I think there is an interesting question of who in Medicare decided, how did they decide, mm-hmm. what's sure. the process? Because I get nervous about whether it's the federal government or insurance companies or whatever, making these choices on what care will be av- available mm-hmm. and wondering how that happened. Um, because sort of like censorship and things like that, it's a slippery slope. Um, you know, what if somebody said, well, you know what, I really think that, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll use an extreme scenario, but you get it if, if there's too much sort of control. What if, if somebody in the federal government said, you know what, I really think that the vast majority of diabetes is avoidable. These people just don't have a healthy diet and they did it to themselves. So I'm not going to cover insulin anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, how did we be, start making those decisions? Diabetes is an incredibly expensive disease in this country because so many people have it and it chews up a lot of money. I don't want them going down that road just because they may disagree with somebody else you know, what they could call poor health choices. So I think the Wall Street Journal, there was a valid question here to go, well, they should have been saying, well, wait a minute, how did this get decided? How are we going to make sure there's guardrails so that while this we decision may have been a good one, the, the next one isn't a bad one? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a valid question. But I do think, you know, for the Wall Street Journal, who's, uh, and I think many times appropriately so, very hard on government spending to suddenly turn around and go, wait a minute, why are you trying to curtail spending? Um, was a bit duplicitous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting, and I don't, you know, they, they wrote about it a number of times, and, and since so many of their articles are paywalled, I wasn't, you know, I didn't want to share them too much in our newsletter just because it would mm-hmm. frustrate people they can't read the article. But um, it, it was an interesting note that I saw that, in you know, it's, like you said, strange. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's sort of like, a, and we'll, we can talk about the National Review here in a little bit. You know, the National Review, you know, certain publications, they stay pretty much on whatever their political bent yeah. is for a pretty long time. Um, the Wall Street Journal seems to ebb and flow a little bit, depending on which way it's leaning. I, I want to turn now to a newer drug that was approved uh, last week or the week before called Relivrio, um, which is the third U.S. approved drug for ALS, uh, you know, a disease that about 20,000 people in the United States have, uh, and it destroys nerve cells for things like walking and talking and swallowing. So it's a pretty debilitating disease. It's mm-hmm. So more treatments are, are better. But similarly to Adjuhelm, prescribers seem to be hesitant to prescribe this new drug because of its effectiveness. Um, The FDA even admitted, they said, well, we needed regulatory flexibility to approve this drug, given the seriousness of ALS. What do you think about them saying we need regulatory flexibility now to approve drugs and whether or not they're going to be effective? Yeah, I will tell you my first reaction to that comment, that that phrase, regulatory flexibility. Um, it's a, an old movie called Gross Point Blank, and then the movie John Cusack plays a, uh, a hired assassin. He's a hitman, and you know somebody's asking him how he got into it, and he said, "Well, I was in the military, and they discovered I had a certain moral flexibility." 
-hmm. And I thought, well, that's an interesting sort of a putting together where it's regulatory flexibility gives me that same sort of creepy feeling as moral flexibility. Um, now, I do understand that we've got this balancing act of a what can be a very long process for drug approval, okay, to err on the side of safety because many drugs, negative side effects and effectiveness don't really show up uh, without fairly lengthy trials, okay? So you've got this issue where everybody complains about why does it take so long for these new life-saving drugs to get to market? Well, because we're erring on the side of safety and making sure that it's effective. And then the other side, which is, well, let's, you know, let's approve for really serious things. Let's approve them earlier, faster, because, I mean, really, you know, if you've got ALS and this thing isn't effective, did it do damage to you? Probably not. This is a progressive disease and it's a horrible disease. Similar arguments got made for Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. So I understand there's a balancing act to speed to market so that we can help people who are suffering versus safety and effectiveness. And I think this ALS drug is a perfect example of some of the prescribers going, you know what, the data just ain't there. It's expensive again. I don't know if it helps. Some of these approvals are based on, you know, educated conjecture. And you're watching the prescribing community going, I'm not sure I'm going to do that. I want to see that this is really effective because we have had examples in, in our history of drugs that looked good and turned out not to be. Mm -hmm. We also have a lot of drugs on the market today that are being prescribed that if they had to go through that process today, if they were a brand new drug, they would never make it through the process. Lithium is a perfect example. Lithium was used for years to deal with people that are manic depressives. It is a incredibly toxic drug. And if it were brand new right now and being run through these processes, it would never get approved. So that's what I think is happening with this ALS drug is they, they wanted it to do speed to market. It is expensive. And a lot of the prescribing physicians are going, I just don't buy it yet. I don't have enough data. You know, I am a frequent critic of overregulation on just about anything, um, but I do think re some regulations necessary, which is one of the reasons why I'm not a libertarian. Um, how much regulation is necessary for pharmaceuticals in the United States? Um, I, I think a lot is mm -hmm. necessary, given what we're talking about here. Um, first of all, and a lot of people throw stones at, at big pharma and say, mm -hmm. well, they're only profit motivated. Well, of course they're profit motivated. Every for-profit company is profit motivated, right. to be yeah. honest. And we've talked about this with insurance companies. Their goal is to maximize their shareholders' investment. And if they don't do that, they can be sued by the shareholders. So it's like being angry at a, you know, uh, you know, at a, at a shark for wanting to eat. That's what it does. Um, that's why you got to have regulation to make sure that their profit motivations don't run crossways. Now, I don't think pharma is out there producing, intentionally producing bad drugs, um, you know, to, to hurt people if they can just make money. But their job isn't to be the one to go, you know, you probably ought to take a look at this and make sure it's really effective or make sure it's really, you know, doesn't have the side effects. That should be somebody else's job. Just like, you know, OSHA got created to make sure that workplaces were safe, mm -hmm. um, that kind of stuff. So I do think there needs to be a fair amount of regulation. Can we Improve that regulation? Sure, absolutely. It could be done a lot better. But left to their own devices, 
I think we'd have a lot of problems. Yeah, and that's fair. And I do like to assume, you know, the best in, in any business that they're not going to do things under the table, because I would hope that if they were doing things under the table, um, they would suffer business consequences because of that. P customers would stop coming, people would stop buying their products. Um, I think opioids disproved that for a number of manufacturers, mm -hmm. um, unfortunately. Um, of course, that's a this unique that's a unique circumstance where they created a, a very addictive drug rather than a, a drug that wasn't effective. Right. Compared to other countries, um, which, by the way, this this drug was approved in Canada before it was approved in the United States. Um, does the U.S. have more or less regulations on uh, pharmaceuticals, and does that keep Americans safer, or does it hinder us from getting um, better drugs faster? Probably both. Okay. I mean, we do have more regulations. It's a more stringent process. That's why many drugs get approved in Europe and other other countries much faster than they do here. So I think you can make an argument that our regulation keeps some drugs from coming to market faster. Um, you only need to look back and go, well, that drug got approved in Europe and you know last year and it didn't get approved here until this year. Well, it finally got approved. That's a whole year we wasted. In hindsight, we did. Mm -hmm. um, but... <laughs> There are also a lot of drugs that are approved in other countries that don't ever get approved here. Oh, yeah. Um, and so in that case, it's safety. So you get some of both. Um, and that's, you know, that's, you know, that's part mm -hmm. of the, the way it works. And even with some over-the-counter stuff, if, if I recall in, in Europe, or at least particularly in the United Kingdom, acetaminophen is not allowed as an over-the-counter drug. You have to have it prescribed to you. Um, but, however, they do have a, an alternative that's a non-NSAID kind of you know, pain reliever that I don't know if I've ever seen in the United States. Right. Um, not saying it's not effective or not safe, but it's, mm -hmm. it's the difference in between our, our regu regulatory systems. Um, some people are hoping that taking this ALS drug in combination with the other two ALS drugs will help, you know, prolong people's lives. Um, and the manufacturer, um, Amelix Pharmaceuticals, has said that if their current you know, long-term study, which includes 600 patients, you know, has results that show that it's not effective, they'll pull it from the market. How, um, how much can we take them at their word on that, that they will actually pull something from the market that isn't effective, but people are still buying? Well, uh, I, have a, I have a couple of problems with that, about that self-policing thing. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, isn't effective is not a one zero or black white it's a grayscale right you know just like um you know the alzheimer's drug we talked about mm -hmm. it's not that it isn't effective it did it did show some benefit just not very much well how much benefit do you have to show before a corporation could go oh no it, it's still effective mm -hmm. so you know that's that's my sort of first problem sure. secondly is again it, it's not their job to do that you know i i appreciate if any company finding something really horrible would pull a product, whatever that is, off the, okay, that's great. But like you pointed out in the whole opioid crisis, I mean, that pharmaceutical knew there were problems there long before it came to air, and they didn't pull their drug because mm -hmm. it was making them too much money. So um, I, I just don't like the idea that, well, don't trust us, you know, if it's not effective, because I think they could show a really small uptick and effectiveness and go, no, it's still effective. It's just not very effective. And, and to play a devil's advocate here, you think about when, um, 
you have, uh, uh, you know, with food recalls, food and other product mm-hmm. safety recalls, that doesn't happen until the USDA or the FDA or, or whatever the regulatory right. agency does, does an investigation into something that already happened. Um, so you're exactly right in pointing out that they're, it's not their own job to police uh, themselves. Do, right. do you think, I want to go back a little bit to the regulatory flexibility comment. And this isn't a summary. That was pulled directly from their, their yeah. memo from the FDA yeah. when they talked about it. Um, when they say things like that, do you think that gives ammo to political groups who have been pointing at the FDA and their approval of COVID vaccines and saying, look, they bent the rules to make it fit their, their need? Oh, a- absolutely. I mean, it, you know, it, it gives unnecessary fuel to that because if things are by regulation, then we expect them to be sort of by the book. And when you start talking about regulatory flexibility, that means you're, well, uh, yeah, they're by the book, except when I don't want them to be. And then it begs the question, well, when is that? And how do you determine that? And how do I know when you're being flexible versus following the regulation? So it, it, it just fed into the, some of the fears of, you know, the, well, they, they must have bent the rules with the COVID vaccine. And look, in the beginning, they said this, and then they said, you need a booster. And see, they're just, they don't know what they're talking about, which, mm-hmm. you know, isn't true, but it leads itself to that criticism. I want to switch gears just a little bit, but when I keep talking about expensive drugs and um, where uh, government money should be going, um, Meme Hu, who is the CEO of um, Vaccinity, which is a biotech company that's developing vaccines for things such as Alzheimer's and coronary heart disease, he wrote a column in Real Clear Health this week talking about um, a little bit about Biden's uh, cancer moonshot plan, um, which I haven't heard a, a ton of detail on. I know he spoke on it a few weeks ago, and I didn't I didn't read what it was. But when he, he talked a little bit about Operation Warp Speed and the amount of money that was poured into the COVID vaccines, uh, he, he talked a little bit about how the U.S. poured money into NASA during the 1960s to get us to the moon, um, and other instances where we fu- poured a lot of money very quickly into particular projects. Um and in particular, he talked about how NASA got 4.4% of the federal budget in 1966, and COVID-19 drug development got $18 billion. Um, he pointed out that the entire budget for the National Institutes of Health is about 1% of the federal budget, and that the new cancer moonshot thing is only getting $6 billion. Should the U.S. government be pouring more money faster into... Um, and I should backtrack a little bit. His, his argument was that we should be pouring more money into um, high-cost drugs and developing ways to make them not as high-cost. Um, should is that something the federal government should be involved in? Is pouring more money into research for you know high-cost things that that affect millions of Americans? Well, there's there's several different schools of thought on that. Sure, um, and. and it has to do with a lot of people's feelings about what the federal government's role in, in our society is. And there, there are definitely some people who think it's a much bigger role than others, and mm-hmm. some people think it shouldn't be there at all. Um, now, when you talk about sort of research for high-cost drugs, you talk about things like a cancer moonshot, et cetera, um, it's awful enticing to think about, but what if we cured it? Mm-hmm. You know, what if we created a vaccine that prevented lung cancer or breast cancer. I mean, think of the value that would have. Okay. With a lot of drugs, 
one of the issues revolves around, you know, is the investment going to have a return? And we, we hear this from drug companies all the time. Yeah, you know, you look at the one drug that I hit home run on and how much it cost, but you don't look at the 15 before it that failed in trials and I spent all that money looking right. for that. You know, it's like drilling for oil. You know, when you get a gusher, it, it, it's a smart investment, but the 15 dry holes before that, you know, you start to scratch your head. So one of the questions that comes up from my perspective and others I've read on this that talk about the government throwing a lot of money at things like drug research. Okay, well, where is the return for the government? Who's going to then sell the drug? Let's say the drug, the government does develop this research and this data is open source and a drug company vaults from it and they create this drug and then they're going to make a lot of profit on it. Mm -hmm. Should there be some return to the government? Now, I've seen some people say, well, the government should do this. And when they find the cure or whatever, or the new drug for this, basically, then they can sell it to the insurance companies or to themselves for Medicare and Medicaid, you know, at some cost. And that's how they pay themselves back. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that it's an investment rather than a spend. I like the idea of the government being involved in some research um, and, and putting some money at things. You know, I think Warp Speed definitely helped bring this vaccine to market mm -hmm. much faster um, because they weren't asking private companies to make a what was a fairly risky bet at the time. But I think we got to make sure that we don't spend our tax dollars just to improve the profits of some other company um, down the line who's going to sell this drug. Um, and that mechanism has to be there. Um, but there are definitely things I think where it would make sense for the government to. Now, I don't think that's an open checkbook and we just start dumping money down the, a rabbit mm -hmm. hole. But, you know, things that are very high cost things in this country that are hurting our economy, chewing up a huge amount of the, the government's um, budget of health care through it, Medicare and Medicaid might not be a bad area to try to put some research money into because you could drop those costs and avoid those costs. Mm -hmm. and now, the difficulty, one last thing, is yeah. but which ones are they? Right. I mean, we have, a, you know, we have a problem of, you know, special interests in lobbying. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine the difficulty if you're going to say, hey, we're going to dump a bunch of money into cancer research, but it's not just... It's not all uniform. Cancers are very different. So what if you have to pick a cancer? You know, are you going to pick breast cancer and have, mm -hmm. you know, half of the population men going, well, that doesn't help me. Right. You know, you're going to pick prostate cancer and have half the population go, well, that didn't help me. You know, I mean, so right. choosing where those investments go become its own problem. And bringing that into the disease world, you think about something like Alzheimer's or, or coronary heart disease, you know, why is one, why would one be prioritized over the other when, right. you know, millions of Americans suffer from both of those uh, right. diseases? Um, it's interesting, you mentioned the, the where we should put, you know, and I, you may have said incentives without actually saying the word incentives, but where we should be investing, and how, how much role the federal government should have, because I was thinking about as you were talking that that's a lot of how, you know, we change and develop, you know, for example, cities, you know, I live near Detroit, the city council has given tax breaks, a ton of tax breaks to different developers to try to move them back to the city to get businesses here, um, to build new buildings. And that's one way of getting, you know, without giving them a check, which is what certain people like, uh, representative AOC don't understand. They're not writing a check for money, but they're saying that they're not having to pay taxes on a particular thing. Um, whereas in, the instance of Operation Warp Speed, you have the government writing a check. 
there, so there's obviously different ways you can incentivize different research and development, um, and what role that they're supposed to play is 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 what the question is. Um, what do you think about the difference between tax breaks and writing, you know, checks to different you know research institutions, and you know, perhaps should we by prioritizing you know nonprofit state universities as opposed to the pharmaceutical companies to work on some of these cures? Yeah, well, so the, the the difficulty from my perspective on tax breaks is it's really difficult to track the tax to track the tax break to the thing you're wanting to incentivize. You know what right. I mean? And if it's research and development, is your is that money really going for that research and the right research? Um, and that's one of the things that you know typically tax breaks are used more from the perspective of trying to attract jobs. You know, because there is that payoff. Well, if this company expands here through this tax break, you know, they're going to pay income to, you know, a thousand more workers. And now is the government going to collect, you know, tax revenue from that income? So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm incentivizing something that I'm going to get a return on. Um, so that, that makes me a little bit problematic about tax breaks. Now, sure. you're right. You could funnel money into, and the government definitely does this through grants and everything through the, you know, the, the, institutions and universities and public universities, that kind of stuff. And that's helpful. Now, I will tell you that there are a lot of people in the big pharma world that says that, you know, the the talent level at big pharma from a research perspective has expanded past most university talent. Sure. They can pay them more, you know, mm -hmm. uh, especially public universities. Now, there's a, there's another option that, that could be pursued, and this is one where, and we sort of did it with, COVID with some of the PPP money, et cetera, is turn the government into a bank, okay? The government has an infinite ability to borrow money. We seem to try to prove that every year as we ratchet up deficits, but, you know, have the government loan money to, let's say, a drug company for the research cost for something. And you can even have a process, because then you can really focus the money. It has to be spent on this, et cetera. And if it fails, that loan or a big part of that loan could be forgiven. So the, the drug company, because it failed, isn't making any money on it, but at least they're not in the hole by X amount of millions, which is what makes their shareholders nervous. Mm -hmm. And if the drug succeeds and they're going to bring it to market, the government could say, okay, now you got to pay back the loan with interest. More interest than what we borrowed it at as a government, you know? So you arbitrage that. So there's a scenario that you could see where the government acts almost like a you know a bank to to give money to these companies to do the research they want them to do and get approved. And if it's successful, at which point everybody wins, the government gets their money back over time plus interest. And if it's not, that loan gets forgiven. Sort of like what they did with PPP money to say, hey, if you keep these people employed, this loan gets forgiven. Mm -hmm. Because if you didn't employ them, we'd have to pay for them in unemployment right. insurance. So. One last question on this before I want to move on to another cost-related uh, topic uh, very briefly. And that's that, uh, as we know, the Inflation Reduction Act um, is allowing, of course, it's been blown out of proportion in the media and certain Democrats, is it's allowing Medicare in some instances to negotiate some drug prices. Mm -hmm. All right? And it's not really, as we talked about before, it's not really negotiation. It's more cost-fixing on certain drugs. Um, a very, very small percentage of drugs. Um, one of whose other points was that that's an interesting step, but the government should be doing a different thing instead to be controlling drug costs, mainly through research and development. What do you think about a comment like that? Well, I think, you know, anybody who thinks that, you know, 
being able to quote unquote negotiate on 10 drugs yeah. is doing anything in the federal budget. It's like me saying, well, I skipped lunch today. I, I fixed my monthly budget right. at the household. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, okay. It's just not there. Um, now, some people say, well, it's 10 today. And what we're going to do it by, you know, by five years from now, it's going to be, you know, all the drugs are going to be able to do this. Well, that's a whole different argument. Um, but I think there's, there's some validity to say, well, you're not really controlling any cost by doing 10 drugs. That's, that mm -hmm. was a marketing thing or a public affairs thing or, you know, uh, a political thing. Um, you could do much better somewhere else. Now, I don't know if it's you can control costs better by investing in more research or some other factor, but it, almost anything has to have more effectiveness than just picking 10 drugs and lowering the cost a little bit because it's such mm -hmm. an infinitesimally small part of the budget that it's really meaningless. Right. I want to switch gears one last time now and talk about the definition of medicine and healthcare. And it has an economically, it has an economic question attached to it. And um, Wesley Smith is writing in the, uh, the, in the National Review online, and we'll have it linked in the show notes, uh, about a, a recent class action complaint against the um, city of New York for the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission. And what's happened is you have this, um, you have a gay couple who is suing uh, the city of New York because the city of New York has decided they're not going to pay for um, IVF or surrogacy services for male gay couples. Um, Smith is arguing here in this piece that this is, should be right, that the, that the city of New York shouldn't have to pay for that because it, this when we expand the definition of medicine and healthcare to include certain things like IVF and surrogacy or abortion or uh, contraception or some of these other, what certain people would call optional services, we're making it more expensive for everyone. Um, what do you think about that, about that analysis of expanding the definition of healthcare and medicine? Well, I think it's a, it, it's a good point to say, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to be worried about the price of something, you have to start thinking about the choices you made on what to purchase. I mean, I've used the analogy of, you know, um, if you go into a restaurant and you order a bunch of things a la carte and you order an expensive bottle of wine or whatever, and you don't look at the price tag of them, then don't complain when the bill comes. Mm -hmm. If you've got a fixed budget when you go into the restaurant, then start to think, well, maybe I don't need a $500 Bordeaux. Right. You know, I can have water. Um, because at the end of the meal, I'm going to be full and hydrated. And is that what I'm really trying to get here? Or mm -hmm. is my definition of I should get whatever I want in this dining experience? And, and it's an important question in healthcare. There are things that are clearly things that should be part of healthcare, you know, office visits, immunizations, sure. surgeries for things, you know, that are going to be life-saving, et cetera. And then you get into these things like, and, and it can start with things like LASIK surgery. You know, should fixing my eyesight um, through surgery be required for my insurance company to pay? Some people would argue, well, they're going to pay for contacts for the rest of my life. They should pay for that. Okay, maybe that. You start to get into things like, you know, gender reassignment, things like, you know, uh, well, I think my nose is too big and I would feel better about myself if I had a rhinoplasty, IVF. You know, mm -hmm. and, and then you start to question, well, is that really a necessary healthcare thing? Because, you know, I feel like my nose is too big. 
you know, should somebody else pay to fix that for me or is that cosmetic? Um, does somebody have a right to um, IVF? Um, I, you know, um, and, and set aside the, you know, it's a gay couple that can't biologically have a baby without, you know, some other, what about heterosexual couples who have some issue where they can't get pregnant? There's a lot of people like that. So it, it's an important question. If we're going to expand the definition, then stop complaining about the price. Right. Um, and unfortunately, I think what we've proven in this country is we have to worry about the price because we're about to break it um, by expanding the definition and, and not being too concerned about price. And it's interesting you brought up that last bit because Smith argues about a case in California where they passed a law requiring uh, group health insurance to cover gay couples as they do infertile heterosexual couples. Of course, he argues that uh, that discriminates against heterosexual couples because they have a medical inability to inconceive while gay couples don't. And that's, you know, making it fall under the definition for healthcare. But he makes it, but you're right, he makes the same point that you make that we complain all the time about the cost of our healthcare, but at the same time have been expanding it significantly. Uh, and he talks about how there are certain arguments already being made for uh, uterine transplants for tran mm -hmm. transgender women um, and why that should be covered under health insurance. Um, well, and, and yeah. you know, all that we're having, in, and again, I, I, it's not that I'm insensitive to a gay right. couple that wants Absolutely. a child or any of that stuff, but while we're having that discussion, there's still tens of millions of people in this country without health insurance. And right. how do you have that discussion about you know, the couple that wants a baby and look somebody else in the eye and go, I know that when you get, when your child gets a, you know, an ear infection that you have to try to treat them at home because your only option is to go in the ER and you can't afford that. Mm -hmm. So that that's one of those other problems of, you know, it's sort of like arguing over, you know, how, my steak being medium rare when people are starving. Right. You know? And going back to um, May May Who's point, you have tons of people in the U.S. that suffer with things like ALS or Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. and there are not being really good drugs developed for those particular diseases right now. Right, right. It's an interesting uh, question, and uh, if we would like to hear from you. If you're interested in telling us what you think, you can leave a note in the comments at flatlining.net or send us an email, flatlining at substack.com. Please also share this program uh, if you think other people would find it as interesting as we do, as interesting as you do. Um, and we'd love to hear from you. So make sure you leave something in the comments for us and rate us five stars, especially on Apple Podcasts, so more people can find us. Ron, we've just about run out of time, so thank you very much for joining us today. No problem. Thank you. Finally today, one other thought about drugs and cost, but this time it's about superbugs. You know, those drug-resistant infections that sometimes people get when they have too many antibiotics. Well, the Pasteur Act was introduced into Congress back into 2020, and it would have created a subscription model for antimicrobial drugs. This new payment model would change the way drug manufacturers get paid. It would be no longer be based on how much they sell. Lawmakers hope that this would help preserve powerful new drugs for these superbugs. 
Under this plan, once a new drug is approved by the FDA, the company would apply to the Department of Health and Human Services for a contract that would spread out the payments for the drug over a period of time. The connection to superbugs, while a lot of these companies that are trying to develop drugs to treat these drug-resistant superbugs have a hard time staying afloat, this subscription model will give them steady income over time, allowing them to keep doing research and development. After all, these new drugs need to be preserved, otherwise the superbugs would find ways to overcome them too. Because of that, many of these companies file for bankruptcy after they get a new drug approved. Will the bill pass? Well, who knows? It's a midterm election year, and this, to many voters, might sound like a pet project instead of something necessary. But the CDC's warning that nearly 50,000 people a year die from drug-resistant and antibiotic-associated infections. During COVID-19, there is a spike in antibiotic prescriptions, which in turn caused a spike of drug-resistant infections. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to leave us five stars and a review and share it with your friends so more people can find this program. For Ron Haugen, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week.